Yes? What do you think of weddings? Maybe some of you think, when you think of weddings, you think of joy and celebration. Maybe when you think of weddings, you think of pomp and circumstance, like the royal wedding. Maybe when you think of weddings, you think, I'm kind of over weddings. I've been to enough of them. <laughs> Makes me think of comedian Jim Gaffigan. He's one of my favorites. Uh, Jim Gaffigan loves ice cream, and one time his wife caught him eating an entire pint of Ben and Jerry's. Uh, he says, I, what can I do? I am a true American. Um, shocked and concerned, his wife told Jim, hey, don't you want to be at our daughter's wedding? Don't you want to live long enough for that? To which he replied, what kind of incentive to live is that? <laughs> it's like you're telling me, don't you die. There's an awkward party in 18 years that you got to pay for, and we need you to write a check. Well, today in John chapter 2, we get to crash a wedding. And no matter your view on weddings, the point of this one isn't the bride and groom. It's actually one of the guests. So if you haven't turned there yet, I invite you to turn to John 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. You'll see the page number uh, of a Bible that looks like this uh, if you want to follow along with me. John 2, 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. When I was younger, I used to love and watch religiously ESPN's Sports Center. Uh, sports Center, if you haven't seen it, they cover highlights of various professional sports games. You hear from talking heads, you get updates on the best players. Now, a good summer day for me when I was a kid was I watched the same episode of SportsCenter two or three times. That was my summer. Um, the best part of SportsCenter comes at the very end. It's at the 55-minute mark. I know it. I've seen it enough times. At that time comes the top 10 plays of the day. You would wait a whole 55 minutes, even if you've seen it before, to wait for the top 10. Now, for those of us who know Jesus... We read a miracle like this, and we might be tempted to think, 
I don't even know if this cracks the top ten. He's laughing. Inspiration from you, Dad. Um, (laughs) But this is here for a reason. It's here, like all of the Gospel of John, to show us who Jesus is. Namely, this is here to show us that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation. That he brings new abundance of blessing and cleansing. If this is who Jesus is, the sovereign Lord of creation who brings abundance of blessing and cleansing, if this is who he is, then what does that mean for you and me? How do we respond to that? What difference does that make for us? Well, let's find out. Let's dive in. We're going to tell this story in three different parts. We're going to, tell it, we're going to see the problem, we're going to see the solution, and we'll see the meaning. First, the problem. Just look first at verses 1 and 2. These two verses, real quickly, they tell us the timing, they tell us the setting, and they tell us the characters of the story. The timing, it says, is the third day. Now, this means the third day after Jesus spoke to Philip and Nathaniel. This is how chapter 1 of John ended. That also means that so far, John has told us just about one week of Jesus' life. And what a week that it was. So we come to the end of that week here in this story. Verses 1 and 2 still, they tell us the setting. They say, it says that the setting is in the city called Gana, Cana in uh, the region of Galilee. Jesus was already in this region uh, in the, when he spoke with Philip and Nathaniel. Cana was about nine miles from his hometown of Nazareth. Now what brings Jesus to Cana? It's pretty simple. It's not hard to answer. It's a wedding. Jesus is going to a wedding. And since both Jesus and his mom get invited, it's likely that one of Jesus' relatives is getting married here. Now, even a simple detail like Jesus is going to a wedding, I think can tell us something about Jesus. It tells us that even though Jesus wasn't married himself, that he still sees marriage as a good gift from God. It tells us that much. And I think also that Jesus went to a wedding... It can keep our view of Jesus and our view of Christianity as a whole, it can keep that in check. Because I don't know about you, maybe, I don't know what you think about when you think of Jesus, but sometimes I can think of Jesus as being stern and stuffy. And maybe that's the perception, that's the vibe that Christians often give off. We are stern and stuffy. Sour our faces. But here he is. Jesus goes to a wedding. A joyous occasion. Now, we might be able to nuance this a little bit, say there are ditches we can fall into. Can we go to too many feasts? Can we turn our lives into endless entertainment? Of course we can. And at the same time, we could fall into another ditch. Should we just always be happy no matter what? Always just put on a smiling face? No. But here, I I like what one pastor says about this. The Christian who withdraws entirely from other people and walks around like he's always attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. Jesus went to weddings where, guess what? I bet Jesus had fun. I love that we can laugh here, for instance. I love that. I love that we don't take ourselves seriously. We take the Lord seriously. And as I pray for you, I often pray that God would show you himself in a new way and it would cause you to smile. Okay? Jesus went to a wedding. So verses 1 to 2, just some basic stuff about the story. It tells us the timing. It tells us the setting. And these verses also tell us the characters. Who's here? Mary is at this wedding. Although John doesn't call her Mary, he calls her the mother of Jesus. Why? 
Well, maybe it's because there are other Marys in this book and John doesn't want to confuse us. Or maybe it's because John doesn't refer to her name for the same reason he doesn't refer to his own name. Is that he just wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus and not distract from him. Regardless of the reason, John tells us other characters in this story too. He highlights the presence of Mary, of Jesus, and Jesus' disciples. At this point, all 12 aren't there. We only have five. So far from chapter 1, we had Andrew, probably John, Simon, who's Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So this is who is involved. But we're saying the, the first stage of the story is the problem. What is the problem in this story? It was actually quite simple. They ran out of wine. At least they were about to. And we hear this problem first from Jesus' mom, Mary. Now, if Mary knew this problem before the other guests did, it's safe to say that she helped with make the arrangements for the wedding. And we get hints from later in the story that back then, kind of just like now, weddings are a lot to pull off. And it was more than just a single-day event. Back then, weddings were multi-day, week-long events. I don't know about you, I probably wouldn't be that excited to take off work for a wedding. (laughs) But later in the story, also, we get other hints that we see this guy, he's called the master of the feast. He talks to the groom about the new wine at the wedding. And this reflects the custom of the day that the groom was responsible for providing everything that they needed for the celebration. The groom, it was on him. So the problem is they're, they're running out of wine. But it was a bigger deal than just people would be thirsty. Running out of wine at a wedding back then would embarrass the groom and his family. This is a shame and honor culture. And running out of wine would bring shame. Even worse, at times, it could even get the groom in legal trouble. It could even bring a lawsuit from the bride's family. So imagine this. Imagine your in-laws suing you because your wedding wasn't good enough. (laughs) That might not be a stretch for some of you to imagine your in-laws doing that. So imagine your married life starting off this way. Okay, so this is the problem. This is stressful. So Mary takes this problem to Jesus. That's very good. It's a good thing to do. But we're wondering, we can kind of pierce into the story a little bit, try to get in her head, why would she do this? Why would Mary bring this problem to Jesus? You look at verse 11. Verse 11 seems to indicate that this was Jesus' first miracle. That up to this point, Jesus lived as an ordinary guy. But remember Mary's experience. When the angel announced Jesus' birth, she, she treasured up those words in her heart. She remembered who her son was to be. Mary also saw Jesus growing up. And if Jesus was sinless, then she would have seen somebody live how she'd never seen live. And I bet Mary probably heard John the Baptist announce Jesus' arrival as the Messiah. So why would she bring this problem to Jesus? I think there's another clue also. Notice that, notice that John, is, is Joseph mentioned at all here? No. I, most conclude that Joseph died before Jesus' ministry began. It's not a knockdown thing, but it's, it's likely. So if Mary was a widow, then she would have constantly relied on her oldest son, Jesus, for his wisdom and for his provision. So this is why, among other reasons, 
Mary brings this problem to Jesus. She comes to Jesus with this problem, and Jesus, we got to admit, does not respond how we expect him to respond. Verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we can read into this. We can read our own tone into this, and we have to be careful about that. Because I think here we have to remember something about translation of the Bible. Now, just because we don't read the original language of the Bible doesn't mean we can't know what it means and what it says. But this is one of those places where we really need to remember there is a language and cultural gap between us and John 2, verse 4. So, in other words, it's really hard to capture the word for woman in English in verse 4. Because we read that word as something that's very harsh, even disrespectful. And don't get me wrong, Jesus does seem to distance himself from his mother, but he does not disrespect his mother here. So a closer word than woman might be something like ma'am. Still distant, but not disrespectful. But even so, even if we clarify that, what gives with this response? Why does Jesus respond to his mom in this way? It seems like he's kind of given his mom the stiff arm here. He, said, he asked her, what does this have to do with me? Now, I think to make sense of this response, you have to go back to how Mary approaches Jesus in the first place. Did Mary ask Jesus a question? No, it was, it was very kind of passive-aggressive. Just, they have no wine. And I think Jesus probably picks up an undertone to her approach to him. Perhaps something like, hey, son, you need to do something about this here. Now, in a respectful but maybe abrupt way, Jesus tells his mom, Mom, you can't treat me like this anymore. Jesus loves Mary. One of the last things that Jesus did as he's hanging on the cross is he looks at his disciple John and says, Behold your mother. Take care of her. But Mary, like anybody else, has to come to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including her own sin. And Jesus adds a reason for responding to his mom the way that he does. He tells her that his hour has not yet come. Now what this means is going to get clearer as we continue reading John. We'll see that Jesus' hour is when Jesus is exalted, glorified. And mysteriously enough, we'll find that the time of Jesus' greatest glory is the time of his death. He will establish his kingdom, not by conquering but by being conquered. Yet his defeat actually brings victory. This is the hour of his glory. And Jesus' response to his mom, uh, I think it will make even more sense when we come to the end of this story. So uh, back to the action here. Mary approaches Jesus. Jesus kind of stiff arms her, not in a disrespectful way, but distancing her. She acted kind of presumptuously. And Mary then walks away, but she doesn't walk away devastated. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. I like how Don Carson summarizes this. He says in verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In verse 5, Mary approaches Jesus as a believer and her faith is honored. But even, we, this is the first stage of the story, the problem. Even in setting up the problem, we get to see who Jesus is and we get to see how we should relate to him. 
we see even in setting up the problem that Jesus is Lord. We are not Lord. This might be news to you, but that is true. Jesus sets the agenda. We don't. Jesus is not our butler. Yes, Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with each one of our weaknesses, as Hebrews says. But we cannot get our relationship with Jesus backwards. We follow Jesus. Jesus does not follow us. So how you talk to God in prayer reveals how you view God. And Mary's approach to Jesus is a bit presumptuous, subtly indicating that he follows her, not she follows him. And it reminds me of James's call to examine how we pray from James chapter 4, which says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Be careful how you approach God. Now, at the same time, this story also tells us how to approach Jesus in another way. It tells us that it's still worth trusting Jesus with our problems. It's still worth it. Even when it seems like Jesus gives us the stiff arm, just like he gave his mom, it could be that Jesus is testing us. It could be that Jesus is trying to draw out from you what you really think about him, what you really believe about his character and about his ability. Maybe that's why he seems to give you the stiff arm, to see, do you truly believe it? Will you keep coming to me? This reminds me of the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15 comes to Jesus begging at his feet. And initially, Jesus denies her request. But what does she do? She persists. She persists in humble faith. So my friends, we should go to Jesus with our problems, but we should trust him enough to keep coming to him with our problems. And when we come to Jesus, we should go to him with humble faith. So maybe to mimic Mary here, to say something like this to the Lord. Lord, I am ready to trust you no matter what happens. Lord, I am ready to do anything that you ask. And Lord, I know that you can help me. Please do. That is humble faith. So we're told the problem. And next, we're told the solution. And John gives us details of what happens next that only a person who saw this could give us. John remembers that there were six stone jars that could hold 20 or 30 gallons of liquid. He says that these containers were for the Jewish purification rites. And to get a little bit of background on this, we see this in action in a place like Mark chapter 7. There, the Pharisees come to Jesus and question him, saying, Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? These guys are gross. They weren't concerned about germs. They were actually concerned about keeping their own traditions. So that's what these stone jars were for. And to Jesus, like any good HGTV host, the stone jars are antiques, but he's going to repurpose the antiques for something better. And Jesus keeps a low profile. Doesn't draw attention to himself. Doesn't stop the party and say, listen, everybody, listen what I'm about to do. Feast your eyes on this. Low profile. We can picture Jesus and the servants talking in the back of the room. Meanwhile, the groom is off on the dance floor doing the electric slide. And Jesus and the servants go to work. The servants just step in their shoes for a second. Servants must have known that they were about to run run out of wine. And maybe they would have gotten in trouble too. 
And the servants hear from one of the ladies in charge who's been barking orders all day that her son can definitely do something about it. So, okay, the servants may say. And, and what do you think? What do you think these servants thought when they heard Jesus' instructions? Fill up these jars with water. I know what I would have thought. Really? This is the best we can do. This is, this is our best and brightest idea. You know, I hear this guy's supposed to be some hotshot messiah. And this is the kind of wisdom we're dealing with here. I guess this wise guy thinks that a bunch of dirty well water will substitute for wine. And maybe this is the kind of wisdom that garners five guys following him around everywhere he goes. But good thing I wasn't one of those servants. These servants do what Jesus says. We don't hear any question. We don't hear any hesitation. As John describes what happens next, John is just adamant. He emphasizes this was a bona fide, genuine miracle. That's what John is stressing. This is a bona fide, genuine miracle. No tricks, no sleight of hand. He says the servants filled up the jars to the brim. Why include that detail? Well, because it's to say, it's not like there was just a little bit of wine in there and just Jesus turned kind of poor wine into better wine. No, he said it was all water. And then it became all wine. And you could sense that Jesus is aware of this point too. Like he wants to make sure these jars are filled up because after all, how many trips would it have taken to the well to get these, these jars filled up? We're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water. Again, if, if I'm one of those servants, I'm, I'm already skeptical about the water plan, but maybe, maybe you can get me to go to the well one time. Maybe twice. Because have you ever carried one of those five-gallon jugs from BJ's or Sam's Club? Five gallons, it weighs about 40 pounds. How many trips would that have taken to fill up these 180 gallons? Now, so just imagine having to draw up that water, carry it however far, and then pour it, but those things are impossible to pour, uh, until you got to 180 gallons. Jesus is making a point. These jars were filled to the brim. And then, just to even bring it, drive it home more, someone with expertise confirms that this really was wine. It was all water and it turned to all pure wine. Someone with expertise confirms it. Jesus sends the water, now turned wine, to the master of the feast. If there are any Father of the Bride fans, the movie with Steve Martin, I picture Franck from Father of the Bride, the eccentric wedding coordinator. If there was anyone at the wedding who knew wine, it would have been the master of the feast. And the master of the feast doesn't just say that it was wine. He says that this is good wine little background. Normally, people would dilute wine with water so that it was a third or even a tenth of its strength. I imagine it probably tasted like that nasty stuff, LaCroix, if you'd like that. But Jesus says, this is good wine. I mean, the master of the feast says that. No water in it, even though it just came from water. And again, John gives us another point to emphasize, to stress, this is a bona fide miracle. He says the master of the feast didn't know where this wine came from. He's basically saying, it's not like the master of the feast was in on it. It's not like Jesus pulled the master of the feast to the corner. He's like, hey, 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 come here for a second. Hey, here's a 20. 
just between you and me. When you taste this, tell people that it's wine. He didn't know where it came from. So all these little details, emphasizing something. They're here for a reason. They're emphasizing this was a bona fide miracle. And so why is John at pains? Why does he stress this, that this was a real miracle? Why? Is it too much of a stretch to say that the people who read John, the book of John originally, are just like us? Too much of a stretch to say that the people who read John originally might be skeptical of this, just like we would be? And so John includes these details. We might think there's this huge distance between us and the people of the first century, the original readers of this book, but there's really not. Sure, the people in the first century didn't know how to split the atom. They didn't know how to sequence DNA. But you don't need advanced science to tell you that water doesn't just turn into wine. Jesus shows his disciples that this was undeniably from him and him alone. So the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, again, it doesn't crack the top 10 for a lot of us. It can draw ridicule. I think of all of Jesus' miracles, this one might get made fun of the most, at least that I've heard. And maybe that's nobody here, but maybe you know someone like that. And John's going to tell us about other signs that Jesus did throughout his book. And this is the first one. So it might be helpful to address this now. Because there are plenty of people who claim that science proves that there is no such thing as a miracle. Science proves that there's no such thing as a miracle. And there are lots of helpful responses to this. One helpful response is from Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. He says that behind this claim that science proves that there's no such thing as a miracle is another claim, a deeper claim. The claim that says there can be no other causes but natural causes. But how do you scientifically prove that claim? What experiment can you run to prove that there are no other causes besides natural causes? You can't scientifically prove that. Because it's not a question of science, it's a question of philosophy. You have to get the right tool. And so here, I mean, people haven't scientifically proven miracles don't exist. They just assume that miracles don't exist. And so if there is indeed a creator God, then there is nothing illogical about miracles. After all, if God created everything out of nothing, it would hardly be a problem for him to do whatever he wants with what he's made. And so back to the story. We say this is the solution, right? Jesus turns water into wine. The crisis is averted. Jesus solves the problem. And the master of the feast basically tells the the groom in a polite way. He's like, hey, man, this wedding was lame before. Why'd you wait to put out this good stuff? And and this this might be a good point to mention. And it's not, I, I don't mean to ruffle any feathers. But just consider Jesus made a way for people to drink good wine at a wedding. Good, seemingly undiluted wine at a wedding. Now, your conscience might be violated by drinking. You might know yourself and you might think it's best and it's wise to abstain from drinking entirely. That's, that is a good thing. That is okay. You are on solid ground to say that the Bible calls drunkenness a sin but I think you are on far less solid ground to say that the Bible calls drinking alcohol at all a sin. 
And I think this is a, one of the key passages for that. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that uh, if you would like. Um, so, third stage. Problem, solution, meaning. At Kate and mine's uh, wedding rehearsal, uh, one of Kate's cousins, he, he wanted to put on a show for everyone. And so we, we stopped dinner, we got everybody's attention, and he juggled for us. Uh, and it's, it's not like he just picked up juggling the week before and wanted to show how he's been practicing. No, he's been juggling since he was a kid with his brother. He was very, very good. And he even juggled those batons that you set on fire. Have you seen those before? It's very impressive. I cannot do that. I would not even try to do that. But for as impressive as that feat is, you know what? I got to be honest. It didn't stick with me. I, to be honest, all but forgot about it a few minutes later, and I went back to eating my dinner. That's to be harsh. But look at this story. That does not happen here. Look at the guys who know what's going on. The, di- the disciples didn't say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, that's really cool. Ah, let's go back to the party now. See, Jesus is more than a magician. Jesus is even more than a miracle worker. The disciples see that Jesus has glory. They entrust themselves to him. They believe in him. Because this was more than just a party trick. This shows something about Jesus' identity. I think it shows us three, three things about who Jesus is. First, it shows us that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Jesus is Lord of creation. John says that this is the first time that Jesus manifested his glory. Now, this is an important Bible reading point. Remember what we've read before. Remember how John has used the word glory already. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, John says that they have seen Jesus' glory that is full of grace and truth. We observe there that this is the same way that God describes his glory when he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34. And so in John 1, verse 14, John's saying, Jesus has the same glory as God the Father. Here in John 2, John's saying, this is the first time we caught a glimpse of that glory. And we think about what they saw. They saw someone who had utter control over the created order. They saw someone who just willed it, and it happened. That is unlike anyone else. That is glory that God alone has. My brother and sister, if you are if you are discouraged, if you are maybe kind of in a funk, a little off recently, if you fight depression like so many people do and, and keep it hidden, we don't want to offer simplistic solutions here, but I want this Jesus to land on you today, the one who wills it and it happens. That same Jesus lives now to intercede for you, believer in Jesus. If Jesus wills it, it will happen. And listen to Jesus' will in a place like John 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire or I will that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. What does this mean? It means believer in Jesus. Jesus wills that you get to heaven. Jesus wills 
that you get to see him in his glory. If Jesus wills it, then it will happen. Second, this is more than just a party trick. This shows something about who Jesus is. Shows that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Secondly, it shows us Jesus brings better cleansing. Jesus brings better cleansing. I'm going to talk about OxyClean for the second week in a row. Um, Any kind of laundry detergent commercial is going to have a split screen. You know what I'm talking about. Split screen, one side of the screen, they show how the other guys, other guys treat blood stains. Apparently they have a criminal clientele in mind. Uh, they show how they treat blood stains on one side, and then they show how their brand treats that blood stain, and it gets it out entirely. It's almost as Jesus, Jesus is doing the same thing here by repurposing those stone jars. And John flags that detail that these stone jars were for Jewish purification. He does that for a reason. It's not not accidental. It's purposeful. And it's too purposeful of a detail not to have any meaning. These stone jars were for Jewish purification. I think this is chapter 1, verse 17, come to life. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The jars that were used as God's way to purify his people were filled up, fulfilled. And now now from those jars come a new and better cleansing. And I think there are other details in this story that drive home the same point. Jesus brings better cleansing. These stars for Jewish purification, what were they at the beginning of the story? They were empty. The wine, which in the Old Testament, a place like Psalm 104, represents joy and blessing. What was, what was the deal with the wine? It had run out. I think this reflects the time of that age. The religion was empty. The wine had run out. Already in chapter 1, we see how the Jewish religious leaders were blind and they led people astray. These guys settled for a passionless relationship with God. They went through the motions. They had an empty religion. And even Jesus says that they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So my friend, if you seek any other cleansing besides Jesus, it will leave you like the jars in this story. It will leave you like the wine in this story. It will leave you empty. What can wash away your sin? Not the religion that you perform. Not the spiritual resume you're working so hard to build not your church attendance, not your Bible reading. What can wash away your sin? You say it if you know it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wow, you really felt that, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Number three, this is more than just a party trick. This shows us something about Jesus. It shows us that Jesus is Lord over creation. It shows us that Jesus brings better cleansing. Finally, it shows us that Jesus is the better bridegroom. Jesus is the better bridegroom. This is going to be a theme in the next couple of chapters in John. And you think about the groom in this story and the kind of day that he, he had. Boy, it must have been a roller coaster of emotions that day. He probably went from, my life is over. My marriage is ruined before it even starts. And then by the end of the day, it was, this is the best day of my life. Not only was this groom spared from ruin, but he also had an amazing gift. There's no way they could have drank 180 gallons of wine. And that would have been a fortune 
This was good wine. What a gift to newlyweds who were likely really poor. Now, you could say that there are other factors. You could say that too many people showed up. You could say that they were strapped for cash. But still, it was the groom of the story who would have gotten blamed if they ran out of wine. It would have been his fault. It would have been his failure. But what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus covering the shame of this groom's failure. Where the groom failed, Jesus succeeded. My friend, if you rely on yourself to make something of your life, if you chase achievement and pleasure, if you chase after entertainment and ease, if you chase after building your own morality, then it will be like the groom's wine. It might start off well, but it will run out. Instead, come to Jesus. You might have heard this quote from David Foster Wallace. I know I've shared it before, but it's really good. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then, then, then you will never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. And when, the t- when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. We say, praise the Lord, Jesus does more than cover the shame of our failures. Jesus provides abundantly where we run on empty. How often do we get this backwards? We think that the world can provide us more than Jesus can. We think that if we could just break free of the restraints that God has put on our lives, then we can enjoy true abundance. We think or even operate like God keeps the best from us. But my friend, that is the lie of the serpent. Notice this story. God brings the best at just the right time. And it never runs out. And he doesn't just give abundance of wine. The wine points forward to something else. In John 10, Jesus says he came to give abundance of life. And Jesus will do that ultimately by giving his own life for us. This story is a preview then. This story is the end of Jesus' first week. John has hinted at Genesis so far in chapter 1 and 2. It's like this is the end of Jesus' new creation, a preview of the new creation that he's going to bring. This story previews the hour of his glory that he talked about with his mom. From places like Amos 9, which we read earlier, or Genesis 49, or Jeremiah 31, the Old Testament says that the Messiah will bring abundance of wine. This story previews when the wine of joy and blessing will flow to all those who believe in Jesus. Jesus is the better bridegroom. And so we say, simple application, like at the end of so many sermons, run to Jesus, not yourself, and keep coming to him, because he will never run out. One day, in fact, the guest at this wedding will bring us to his own wedding in his own home and we will feast forever and it will never run out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise your holy and your beautiful name.
We praise you as the Lord of creation. We praise you as the one, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. We praise you as the faithful and better bridegroom. And we thank you, Lord. We we ask that you continue to work in us. Make us us to present us before the Father, holy and without blemish. As when we stand as your church, as your bride one day, continue to work in us so that you do things, you help us not to approach you presumptuously, but to approach you with humble faith. Make us, Lord, see you to be not just casually described in Scripture, Help us to see who you really are. Please help each one of us do that for our good, your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.